Hello and welcome back to The Ties That Find. I'm your host, Rachel, and this is a true crime podcast that tells the stories of long investigated mysteries that are solved using forensic genealogy. As a disclaimer, I am in no way affiliated with or sponsored by GEDmatch, Powerbond Nanolabs, or the DNA Dope Project. Today we travel north into a tiny Canadian town where a monster stole a young girl from her family. The 35 years that it took to get to the truth about her abduction and murder will impact more than just the lives that she touched. This case will also change the way Ontario law enforcement investigates and prosecutes its most violent crimes. This is the case of the 1984 abduction and murder of Christine Jessup. Hello, happy Wednesday. Welcome back. I hope everyone had a good week last week. I wonder what you thought of our last week's episode about um, little Bobby Witt. I think it was a crazy case. Um, I'm really happy that they were able to figure out who he was, the boy under the billboard, as well as also solve the mystery of the Jane Doe that was his mother. Um, If you haven't listened to it, please go back and listen. It's, it's It's a great case to highlight the importance of genetic genealogy. And then also we get to see um, Timothy, Timothy Horn. He was just amazing. And he really stuck with the case. For this week, um, we are going to cross another threshold here in the podcast. We're going to talk about uh, the abduction, rape, and murder of a little girl. This was from the 80s up in Canada. So at some point, we knew that this was going to come into your feed here on the Ties to Find, and I decided that I was going to do this type of case with um, and by using the case of Christine Jessup. So when I started researching this this case, I did not realize it was going to be so thorough and there's going to be so much information about it, but it actually, the, the Christine Jessup case actually turned, turned law enforcement on its head back in, in the nineties. So what we're going to do is, um, because I have so much information to share and, and there's a lot going on with the suspect that they did have, I'm going to make this a two part case. And so we're going to do the first part today and then we're going to, we're going to get through the first trial for the suspect. And then we're going to go into the second trial and the conclusion next week in the part two. All right. So with that, let's get started. Christine Marion Jessup was born on November 29th, 1974. Her parents were Robert Jessup and Janet Jessup, and she actually already had an older brother. His name was Kenneth, and he was born in 1970. Now, the Jessup family originated from the suburbs of Toronto, but at a certain point when the kids started to get, you know, to grow older into their toddler years and then, you know, their, their younger years, Robert and Janet decided they wanted to move the kids away from the city type areas and get closer to, you know, the more quiet town, small town living areas. And they settled in um, on Queensville. Queensville is also part of Ontario. Um, but it, it, this this town actually has like a population of 400. It's a really, really tiny town. So we're just going to do a quick geography lesson so we, we can situate ourselves in, in, in Canada. Here in the States, of course, we know we have 50 states. We have Hawaii and, and Alaska that are not part of the continental United States, but our states come in different shapes and sizes. Same thing for Canada. However, Canada calls them provinces. Uh, I would consider them like a state, I guess. They're like giant states, though. From from If you look at the map, you see there's like nine of them, and two of the ones that are up north or three of them are really just I, probably just just barren land that is barely even ha- um, ha- habitable. Inhabited, <laughs> inhabited. Sorry, um, we have 
provinces like Ontario, you've heard of Quebec, you've heard of British Columbia, which is the one out way out west. Those are the provinces. Those are the main ones. Um, and then you have the cities in these provinces that are just like, you know, just like a city. Um, they are Toronto and we have Ottawa. Those are the in, in Ontario. There's also Montreal. That's the city. That's the main city in Quebec. There's also Vancouver, uh, is, which is in British Columbia, which is the one that way out west, you know, just north of Oregon and, and Washington. Then we also have lands that are bigger than a city, smaller than a province. And those are called regional municip municipalities. I guess just for our purposes, we'll just consider them just kind of like a county. So we have different, there's different locations throughout this case. And so we're going to have different types of law enforcement come in. So it could be local, could be, you know, the municipality, that could be the city, could be, you know, the whole um, province of Ontario. So that's your little geography refresher about, about Canada. So now the family has moved away from the Toronto suburbs and they're living in this really tiny, quiet, 400 population town of Queensville, Ontario. They have a, they have a great life. They're really happy being there. They, they feel like there's a real sense of, a real sense of community there. Um, this town is so small that they only have like one general store and this is the early eighties. A lot of times we hear about towns that are like this and, and they say the downside is that you, everybody knows everyone, everybody is in, is in your business. But I think there's also a, a real appeal to it because that means everybody takes care of everyone as well. So that that seems to be the case here, at least for the Jessup family. Dad says that they've really felt like they were that they were in a, a really great town and they had the, the community really worked together and came together when this happened to Christine, when Christine goes missing. So now we're into 1984 and Christine is um, eight years old. She's going to be nine in a few months. And Robert is actually working. Robert is the dad. He works for a telecom company. He gets charged and either convicted or pleads guilty to, quote, misappropriation of funds, which is essentially embezzlement. And he has to serve jail time. So he's sentenced to 18 months in jail. He's only three weeks into this jail, jail term when, when Christine goes missing. So now we're into Wednesday, October 3rd of 1984. Christine's in fourth grade. And her brother is in eighth grade and mom and mom decides she's going to take the brother Ken to go visit dad for the day um, at, at the jail. So I guess it's quite a, it's quite a drive, but Chris and Christine wants to go, but mom and, and her brother say, no, I don't think it's a good idea for you to miss school. Also, it's a long ride. It's going to be a long day. And also we're, we're going to a jail. Other people are incarcerated there. It's not just to see your dad. I think you are not ready for, you're not old enough to have that kind of experience yet. And Christine, I want you to stay home. Christine is upset. She wants to see her dad. She is a daddy's girl and she's really upset with mom for not letting her go. So she throws a temper tantrum and mom says, no, you're staying home. You're going to go to school, meet up with your friends afterwards if you want. And then Christine's like, okay, fine, I guess, whatever. And so she does, she stays home. She goes to school and mom and brother go off to visit dad where he is in prison. Now, after school, Christine gets off the bus she goes home and then she decides she's going to take her bike and she's going to ride like a few blocks to the town's, um, like I mentioned earlier, the town's only general store. Now, we don't know exactly when Christine goes missing, but she does have an appointment to meet up with her friend at the park, like a little ways away from her house. And her friend is expecting her to be there at four and Christine never shows. She is seen at that general store buying gum. So we know that she was there. Some A witness does see her. 
But by the time her mom and her mom and her brother make it home, they make it home like around four o'clock, they tell us, and she's not there. Her bike is there. It's just laying on the on the lawn. They don't know where she is. So they say, oh, well, maybe she's being sloppy. We'll just go check the park because we know that she was supposed to meet up with her friend there and she might still be there. So they go to the park and Christine's nowhere to be found. Then Janet says, okay, well, maybe she's at the friend's house. So she calls the friend. Christine's not there. She calls another friend. Christine's not there. Now she, she doesn't know what to do. She does give it some time, but by the time 7.30 rolls around, mom's had enough of not knowing where her daughter is, and she calls the police. So York, this is where we get into it. York is like the county. It's the municipality. The York police do come to the house. They interview mom. She says she was supposed to be here. My, my son and I went kind of like for a day trip, but we got back around four o'clock. Christine's nowhere to be found. She was supposed to go to the park. Not there. No friends have seen her. They don't know where she is either. Find my daughter. They do conduct three days worth of searches and they bring everything in. There's upwards of 350 people that volunteer to help search for Christine. There are people through, they're searching throughout the town. They're searching over all the farmlands. You know, there's, like I said, it's a small town and it's also rural. So there's all sorts of like, you know, woodsy areas. There's all sorts of farms. They're searching everywhere. And uh, they're using helicopters and these, you know, special airplanes looking for ultralight hits or heat hits or whatever all the technology stuff is. They've got their dogs sniffing for Christine's scent. They've got horses that they're traipsing through the woods with. If they can't, you know, get if it's dense enough and they and they don't want to be walking, they're using horses. Um, it's just a lot of support from the community comes out for the Jessup family, and, and they're looking for essentially for one of their own. What they don't do, the police, is they don't treat it like a crime scene right away. They don't come in and they don't fingerprint the Jessup home. They don't process it in, in other ways. They're not taking notes about items that might be missing, items that were there that shouldn't be there. You know, they're not interviewing mom. Is there anything weird about your house? Is there anything weird about the lawn? Anything like that? They do know that the, her bike was there, but that's that's it. They don't know if she was just being sloppy or if she if she was essentially snatched. They also don't go and interview the neighbors right away. Looking back, one of the things that raises our eyebrows is we find out that there were some leads that came in, but the police didn't follow up in a timely fashion on some of these leads. And one I found was, quote, the sighting of a man who appeared to keep a child forcibly in a car, unquote. But then the follow up didn't come for another 12 days after the police had gotten that tip. That's a huge, huge concern when we have a, a small child that's missing and there's a report in a town like this that a kid was in a car that didn't want to be in the car and the police don't go running to find who that car was, who owns that car, anything else that they could. You know, they got the tip in and they just let it sit there on the note on the notepad on the desk for 12 days. Now, mom, Kenneth and dad are beside themselves. So the judge actually decides um, he has granted um, a temporary release from jail on bail. Uh, dad is, Dad Robert. They let him out and they say, all right, based on the fact that you've got a hardship at home and also the fact that, you know, you're appealing this conviction, um, we're going to just let you out, but you have to promise to come back. Now, Dad thinks that him being in jail actually might have something to do with Christine going missing, but police don't think so. They think that it was just a random abduction and she was just taken out of town. Dad and family think that it could either be someone that is getting back at him for something, for what he did, or maybe it's someone that just, uh, that, that knew her dad was in jail and wanted to use it as an opportunity to, to lure her away from, from home or something. 
So they have eight investigators searching the sex offender registries, interviewing local sex offenders that they have. I don't know if these are all from Queensville. That's a terrifying thought. But anybody that's in the area that they think might have either have information or might be suspicious. Soon enough, though, the parents are saying, listen, there's, this is wonderful that the community has come out for us, but it's been days now. It's It's been, now we're going into days that she's been missing and our hearts are breaking. Our little girl is gone. We need to do something. So the parents actually take to just driving around, going on highways or going through other local towns, just trying to see if there's any kind of clue as to Christine or where she could be. So now we're getting into three weeks after Christine has gone missing. We're um, in the third week of October and all the local schools are deciding that they're going to start fingerprinting the kids. I don't know if, if, if this happened everywhere, but I remember when I was in, I think it was in second grade, I was fingerprinted. Yeah. So around 1984, I remember being fingerprinted and I thought it was kind of weird, but I also thought it was kind of cool. I don't remember if we were told in case you go missing, this is how we, we might be able to identify you later. You know, I'm just wondering, you know, was this a national thing? Probably because we had a lot of kids go missing in the seventies and then in the early eighties. So they had to try to come up with a plan. But the thing is, is this fingerprinting of our children, or me as a kid, you as a kid, it wasn't to prevent the crime, wasn't to prevent the abduction. It was something that actually was in case you need it later, in case the child goes missing and then the child is discovered later. That's how we're going to help identify the child. So what happens is what they did in this in this town in Queensville is they they said, all right, anybody who wants to get fingerprinted, we're going to take the fingerprints on the, of your kids on the cards and then we're going to give that card to you and then you keep it in your in your safe or in your safekeeping at home and you attach a picture you know the latest picture of your child to it and any other important information so i think it's just kind of like one of those um like if i go missing type folders dad says dad robert he actually says well if one child is recovered because of this fingerprinting then it's worth the effort a few months go by and now we're we're narrowing in on christmas the family's annual Christmas tradition would be for Ken and Christine to get the Christmas tree, and they would they had a, they had an artificial Christmas tree. They would be the ones that would put it together and decorate it. This year, it just stays on the shelf. They have absolutely no want or desire to even celebrate because they their their family's not whole. All they can do is think about trying to get Christine back. Ken tells us in the, in a newspaper article, "I'm not even interested. I'm not even going to bother. I'm just going to sleep in." All we're doing is waiting for the phone to ring. We don't know if Christine's alive. We don't know if she's dead. We don't know where she is. Dad Robert says, I go in there sometimes and I turn on the light and I straighten out the teddy bears and sit on the bed. Sometimes I think I see her sleeping in there and I just feel like tucking her in, unquote. And then we have the local um, president of the local missing children organization. Her name is Wendy Foley. And she says, now is the time for parents to start talking to their kids about strangers. You know, throughout time, we, all parents at some point talk to their kids about strangers, and we we have a, we want to feel safe, and we don't want our kids to be freaked out, and we don't want our kids to be terrified. Um, I remember, and I'm going to officially apologize to my mom. <laughs> Sorry, mom, but I you know I gave my mom a real scare once back. Um, I think it was in fifth grade, actually, so I would have been about ten, and I had uh, I was kind of a I was kind of a nerd. I was kind of a goody two shoes. I was I was the kind of person who really liked to, you know, engage with with teachers. And I had stayed after school to talk to my um, 
I, I had a, it was a, it was the teacher of a friend. So m- the friend and I were staying after school and we were just lollygagging around, bef- but you know, to, to hang out with the teacher and we were just chatting, but we were in there and um, talking to the teacher for like 20 minutes after school. But my, but at the time my mom had been picking me up from school. So my mom doesn't know this cause I haven't left the school to tell her I'm just chatting with the teacher. And so my mom is, when I come out and I'm like, Oh, my mom is supposed to be out here because I'm an idiot, because I'm 10 years old. And then my mom does pull up in front of the school and she happened to be, you know, she had left the the front of the school because she didn't, I, I hadn't come out, but then she was also scared. So she was driving around the neighborhood looking for me. And when she pulled up and I, I was just standing there like, oh, hey, here I am. And my mom was freaked out and she was mad. And she's like, people, people take kids. You can't be doing this. You know, what were you thinking? And I was just like, oh, I, I, I'm sorry. And, um, I was pretty much grounded, of course, grounded. I don't remember how long. I think she wanted me grounded for a month. She might have let me go after a week, but she made me watch this. Uh, what was it? It was just some, it was a, it was a movie about a kid that got stolen and, and taken into another family. But it was, in any case, it was, um, you know, it was this, it was a scary thing for my mom. And sorry, mom, looking back, I realized I, <laughs> what a mistake I made. But we don't know when we're kids. We just, you know, we're just living our lives and we don't, we don't know. <laughs> um, it's it's terrifying for for parents to have to. How how far do you go into that discussion with your kid? You know, don't talk to strangers. Well, you know, okay. Well, what if what if it's a stranger that you you kind of know? Is that is that okay? Oh, I'm gonna pick you up because I want to go. I want to help you. Just like um, it was that Amy Mahalovic. They think that she was picked up by somebody that she knew, or or at least that her mom knew that said your mom got a promotion. I want to take you out to get you get her a present for her. And then she was never seen alive again. So now we're around New Year's, New Year's Eve in 1984, going into 1985, and we find Christine. We're about 30 miles from home, and we're in a wooded area north of Toronto. There's a farmer and his kids, and they're out in the woods looking for their dog, and they come across across Christine's body. They bring in the the regional, you know, the regional municipality, Durham police. And we have Michael Michalowski. He is the crime scene investigator and he is not Tim Horn like we had last week. He is uh, somebody other than Tim Horn. We'll just say that for now. They do find some of Christine's clothes um, on her and near her. Um, she also had a music recorder, one of those little, um, those little straight looking flute things. She had recently gotten that and she had that with her at, at this, at the scene. They are able to identify her with her dental records. Videos I watched about it, um, which was, is called the, the fifth estate. It's, um, kind of like Dateline. They did a, a few episodes on this case and they interviewed Ken, the brother, and he had said that that night before they got the knock on the door that they had found Christine that, Mom and dad were actually arguing about whether or not they were going to go into the States to try to look for her. So they're, the mom and dad are still doing the best that they can to, to try to locate Christine. They're being very active. So they do Christine's autopsy. And at first, the police don't want to release any information. But then later on, we what we find out is that she had been stabbed. She was stabbed twice in the chest and then three times in the back. So I guess, I don't know if she'd been rolled over. Maybe she had tried to get away. You know, maybe she was trying to crawl away. They found blood and semen stains on her underwear. The lab says that they can't tell what kind of blood it is, the the blood type. It's been out exposed to the elements for the majority of three months. And the the blood is, you know, just the small samples of blood. 
They also find a hair that's actually entangled in her necklace that she was wearing. It's just a single dark hair. They, they believe it's not hers, so maybe it's her killer's. They also find her with her sweater pulled up over her head. And like I said, the pants and her underwear had been light to the side. So this must have been where she was not only um, killed, but assuming we're assuming that she was also sexually assaulted. Now we're going to go and we're going to ask, well, what did the police do? They want to protect the crime scene as much as they can because they know that there's going to be a snowstorm coming. So they say to themselves, all right, well, we're just, we, should, we should cover this off with a tarp. Um, but then they don't. They they never get the tarp out, and then they never cover up. They never cover up the grass, and and the wooded area that's surrounding Christine. What they also don't do is measure out an actual search grid. We don't know how far out from the body site that they searched. They could have only been searching in that that general area, like what ten by ten grid. It could have been a thirty by thirty grid. We don't know. It could have been you know. It should have been a half mile, a mile. I don't know what the the standard is, but. There's no record of exactly how much uh, land area around around Christine's body that they searched for evidence. Dad says, it's the end of a nightmare. And mom Janet says, quote, all I can hope now is the police apprehend the person who did this so it could put the community at peace. We always loved living here. That's why we moved here. But this has scared everyone, unquote. After the autopsy and Christine's body is released, they do have her funeral and hundreds of people attend. She's buried with a cabbage patch doll. This baby girl, she's only nine years old. The police do scope out the funeral because we've heard before when people like to stay close to close to any activity that's for an investigation of a crime that they've committed. So cops are f- photographing cars, taking writing down plate numbers, watching all the, all the people that are there, the close eye to see if anybody's suspicious, put that in the case file. And Christine is buried behind her house. They actually had a small cemetery behind the house where the Jessops lived. Dad tells us that Christine actually used to kind of play there. She used to walk through the cemetery with her friends. It was be a place that they would hang out. There was a grave for a little boy who was about eight years old when he died. And and she liked to spend some time by that by that gravestone and tend to the gravesite for him. But now, unfortunately, she's with him in that in that cemetery. So now we're getting into the initial investigation. The Durham police are going to investigate. Let's see, Inspector Brown, I'm not sure what his first name was, but he was in charge and, and he says, this is a new case for us, so just give us some time. We're just going to go through the file that we got from their hometown and we're going to start re-interviewing people, go through the evidence again. February 14th, 1985, Bernie Fitzpatrick and John Shepard go to Christine's mom and dad's house to interview them again about what they remember, or what they knew, Janet and Ken at least. And they tell them that, well, you know what, that guy next door, the whole family next door, they're just kind of weird. So this prompts one of the cops to just actually write this guy's name down. And he he puts next to his name the word suspect, which is, I don't know if that's really the right word you want to put on when you're just doing an initial investigation, because you're putting it in your mind that he is a suspect when he, you have nothing on him at this point. But that's what he does. And this guy, the next door neighbor, his name is Guy Paul Morin. About a week later, they say, well, we got we to speak to Guy. They find him and they ask him if they can interview him. They did want to tape record it. So they had a tape recorder and it was hidden. So Guy didn't know that it was there. But um, the, 
they they interviewed him for about 90 minutes. He, they didn't really come up with anything, um, but the tape actually ran out and they forgot that they had to turn it over and start it again. So there's only 45 minutes worth of, of interview that was actually recorded, but they didn't get anything from him. They does, they, he tells them he got home that day around 4.30. Later on, I guess he's thinking about it and he says, all right, maybe it was like 5.30. I went, I went food shopping after after work before I got home. Do you think this is something that we could really get get him for? Is this something that makes him suspicious because he's changing his quote story on the initial interview that he's having with these with these cops about an hour difference? How many times have we stopped somewhere on the way home and then you know I don't remember when I got home. I think it's, he, he's narrowed in pretty well. It was Wednesday. It wasn't a weekend, so he must have known at least that that much. I've you know I had I had work that day. There's something to be said for when we're mad at someone or we don't like someone or we're in a certain mood, right? Where you're like, nothing that this other person is going to say is going to make me happy. I mean, have you ever been in a fight with your significant other, a coworker or a child, you know, your own kid where they, they pissed you off in some way and then everything that they do after that is just making you more pissed off and more pissed off. And they're totally clueless as to what as to what you're mad about. And so they can't fix it, but all of them is making you more, more and more mad as time goes on. I think that's pretty much what happened here in the case, because as soon as Christine's parents say, yeah, the guy next door is weird, they wrote down his name and then they just wrote suspect next to it. And they're going to take this indiscrepancy and they're going to run with it. The problem though, is that if he says that he got home at 5.30, or even if they think they're going to think he got home at 4.30, Guy was working in Toronto at the time, they did check his his punch card from work and found out that he had clocked out at like three three thirty that day, and so they do the math and they're like, oh well, with, with the travel time, he wouldn't have been able to get home until at least four fifteen, because um, it's about forty five minutes from from Queensville. But then mom said that that her and Ken got home at like four four ten. So how how does this work? If we think that he's the one that did it, mom must be wrong. So they go back to Janet and they say, hey, Janet, is it possible that your clock is wrong? Is it possible that you actually got home like more around 4.30? And she was like, I'm pretty sure it was like 4 or 4.10. And Ken even says, no, it was closer to 4 than it was 4.30. And the police are like, no, I, we really think maybe your clock is wrong. How about, how about your clock is wrong and you got home more around like 4.30? And Janet and Ken are like, okay, I, yeah, maybe. Okay, we'll say that. Janet ends up believing them so much that she will end up throwing out that clock because she is convinced that that clock is wrong. So at a certain point, the public wants to know, what are you doing? What have you found? What is going on with Christine and, and, and her murder investigation? Have you found anyone? Do you have anybody on your radar? And the police tell us, well, we've got five guys in Queensville that we're watching. And we're pretty sure that one of them is her killer. And this is a profile that we've come up with from the FBI. We believe her killer is a white male between 19 and 26 years old, and he's a high school graduate. We think he's smart, a smart guy, but he's a loner and he's a night owl. We think that he might be a laborer and he might have some raggy clothes and he might have recently had some family problems. So that's his, that's the demographics we're looking at. The newspaper interviews the general store owner where Christine had bought the gum. And he says, quote, but that's 60% of the people who come in here. They're sloppy. It's not because they're dirty. It's because of the work that they do. They're farmers, they're mechanics, they're drywallers, they're painters, unquote. 
Exactly. Like this is not, you're not narrowing this down to any, to any particular like five guys in town. We also have a quote from a um, you know resident of the town. Her name is uh, was it Marion Coffee. The article says she's a thirty year old housewife and a mother of four, and she says, "quote Everyone wants to think it's someone who's passed through town." Now they say that it's someone that could be here. Well, my neighbor and I were talking today, and we were watching the detectives point here and there, up and down the street, and we were saying, "Oh my God, don't go pointing at my house." I mean, let's face it, there are only so many people in this town. Unquote. It's terrifying. When the police are saying it's somebody in your own town that did this to, to one of your children, is is it another father? Is it an uncle? Is it a brother of somebody who was also a child? They also said that he could have been living in town. He could have been on her street. Maybe he could have been living, living next, right next door. Like, like really, are you, <laughs> the police, do they have to do any work in this case? I don't, I don't really get it. They're just taking all these, these what ifs and these possibilities and they're just finding a person that fits that fits that description it's not that there's we don't really see and we're not going to see any any real evidence but we'll, we'll go through it and a few days later Guy is officially arrested and he is charged for the murder of christine jessup so let's find a lot of a little bit more about Guy paul morin he is the youngest of six kids and he is 25 he's now unemployed but at the time, he actually was employed. He he does live with his parents next door to the Jessup's house. Um, but this is also a guy who keeps bees as a hobby. You know, he plays the clarinet and he plays the clarinet in like an orchestra type band. He's not in a rock and roll band. He was actually driving to band practice when police pulled him over and arrested him. And he was flabbergasted. He says in interviews, he's like, are you kidding? This isn't this isn't real. How were they able to get an arrest warrant for Fergie? Well, a few weeks earlier, they had sent an undercover female uh, police officer into his band practice, posing as like like a hair salon student, like a hairdresser student, to you know give some haircuts to people that were in the band. She gave Guy a trim of some of some sorts and saved his hair. They took his hair to the lab. The lab said it could be a match, which the police department interpreted to be was a match. They were able to use that to get. Um, to get his arrest warrant and execute it, and they took him into jail. So he's going to spend the rest of 1985 in jail awaiting his trial. His trial is going to be in early January of 1986. When we get to the trial, we have to put all, you know as much evidence as we can in front of the jury. Guy's cellmate testifies that Guy had confessed to killing Christine. And then another cellmate, I'm sorry, another inmate, he also testifies. He says that he was in a cell over, you know, the next cell over from them. And he overheard the same conversation. So after the supposed confession from the inmates, they go to the to the warden and they, they tell him what Guy had said. They do put a wire on the one cellmate. And there is a recording of a conversation between him and Guy, but there's actually no actual clear admission is recorded. There's no real confession that actually happens. The forensic tech does testify about the fibers and about the blood. She does say that the hair has similar characteristics to Guy's, and it might or might not be his. Guy's parents do testify also. They do say he arrived at home that day around 530. He came home with two bags of groceries. And then Guy actually, he also testifies. He testifies on his own behalf. They ask him, well, why didn't you search for her? Because he wasn't at the search. He wasn't part of the searches. And he was like, uh. And they say, well, why didn't you go to her funeral? And they, he says, uh, I wasn't invited. And they say, 
listen, you didn't help search for her because you knew that she was already dead, right? And he's like, um, no. So here's my question. Would you have been, what would you have done if you're a 25 year old guy living at home, have your own job, whatever, your neighbor goes missing. You don't, you're not necessarily close. You don't have close ties with this neighbor. Granted, the town itself is close, but as far as knowing your neighbor and, and, and interacting with your neighbor regularly, the Jessups told the cops, our next door neighbors are weird. Guy is kind of a weird guy. If this is what they're saying to the cops and how long have they lived next door to these people, to, to the Morins, how, how, what has their interaction been like? Do we think that just because that you, you don't show up to volunteer to search for a missing person, a missing child, I'll give you this. He definitely should have. But at the same time, he's a 25 year old guy. He's half the time he's working. He was probably, he probably worked a few shifts during, during the searches that, you know, those few days. And who says that you have to just because you don't doesn't mean that you're suspicious, that you should be suspicious. I don't know if I would have, in all honesty, only because you're, you're young, just like when you're a teenager, you're still, you're thinking about yourself. You're thinking about fun things. You're thinking about, you know, they might, if they're not religious, they're not, you know, it's not like, you know, you're doing something for your, for your congregation because it's not like it's a, if, if they're not in the same church, then they're not necessarily, they don't have that kind of tire, that kind of obligation. So I don't, I don't know. I don't think this, just the fact that he didn't go to the funeral or go to help search for her was an admission of guilt because how many other people didn't show up? Right. If there are 350 people out of 400 people in the town, that means at least 50 people. If it was only Queensville people that were searching for her, then that means 50 people could have actually killed her then by that logic. So what's going to happen? Well, the jury goes out and the jury comes back and he's acquitted. Sweet. We don't think that he did this, right? I mean, I am definitely spinning it for you for this episode, but we're going to, you know, we'll, we'll get farther into it. He's acquitted. The town is shocked. The town is upset. The town thinks that they're setting an, a killer on the loose, that he's a pedophile, he's a killer, and now they're sending him back to their town. And imagine what he's going through, too, because now everybody's looking at him. Everybody's giving him stares. He's out of jail. They have a local news outlet. They, they released him. He's back in our town. What do you think of this? And they actually have a guy that says, well, they arrested him, so he must have done it, right? He's a monster. I can't believe that they acquitted him. Well, in the twists of all twists, the Canadian government, the prosecution decides they're going to appeal. Appeal? Yes, they're going to appeal. Things are a little different over in Canada than they are here in the States, and I'm not sure about other places throughout the world. But as far as the Canadian government goes, prosecution is allowed to appeal if they can somehow prove to the appellate court that the law was not followed during the first trial. So we see this in the States and uh, when it comes to like mistrials, we might have something happen during the trial, whether it's jury tampering or misconduct or something, something happens with the evidence that is, is not right or what have you. And then, then, then the judge says, oh, the, the jury can't, can't come back from this and be, and be objective. So the judge will declare a mistrial and say, we got to stop this and we got to start all over again and have a new trial. And in the mistrial case, the, the trial doesn't, isn't able to be seen through. The trial ends right then and there. In this s- scenario here, when it comes to um, appealing an, an acquittal, 
obviously the trial has actually completed the jury has deliberated the jury's come back with an with a verdict and it's an acquittal but the prosecution is uh, by law allowed to to essentially object to that and present a case to the court saying that something went wrong with the trial the first time and sometimes it works out sometimes the supreme court will say we agree with you the trial was no good. It was not effective. It's it's now null and void. We're going to go through the whole process again and have a new trial with a new set with a new set of jurors. On the rare occasion, the Supreme Court also has the authority to, if they feel that the evidence is strong, they can they can just convict the person right then and there. And there's no not even a second trial. It's just an automatic conviction after the appeal is completed. That didn't happen in this case with Guy Mirren, but the the Crown did win on the appeal to get a new trial. He didn't. He wasn't just automatically convicted. So they're going to go back to square one, and they're going to try Guy Mirren again. The reason for this appeal was that the the Crown didn't think that the trial judge properly directed the jury in in regards to the meaning of reasonable doubt. So on, uh, let's see, it was June 5th, June 5th, 1987, the, the Court of Appeal does order a new trial. And now we have to essentially go to wait for the next trial. And the prosecution or the Crown is going to go back to the drawing board and try to come up with um, more evidence or discover more evidence, um, whether it's concrete evidence, circumstantial evidence, witness, better testing on the hairs and fibers, whatever it might be. That's what they're going to work on until his next trial. Um, it's going to be four years until the next trial, but it's only going to be a week until you find out what happens. Yes, I am going to do it to you, but don't worry. I think we all know that Guy Marin didn't do it. It's just a matter of time before we fi- find out who actually did. And we're going to get to that and we're going to get to that next week. In the meantime, you can find me at theties.find.com, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at theties.find. Email me at theties.find at gmail.com. Rate, subscribe, review, please. And if you were once a child who scared the living crap out of your parents by not realizing they were searching for you and you were just hanging out with a teacher or hanging out with a friend or lollygagging somewhere and they had a heart attack thinking that you got kidnapped, apologize. (laughs) Sorry, mom. Have a good week, everyone. Bye.